Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 22nd of January 2012. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and with me this week is Hannah Critchlow. Hello, Hannah. Hello. And this week we're looking at vitamin D and also the unsettling suggestion that the majority of people who are living at higher latitudes, in other words, us, are actually teetering on the verge of vitamin D deficiency. We'll hear why and we'll also find out how this can affect your health in other ways, including increasing the risk of multiple sclerosis and even bowel cancer. And in the news this week, why a good night's sleep might actually make painful memories harder to handle. And also, why seaweed might be about to ignite a biofuel boom, thanks to a modified microbe with a taste for seafood. So, if you have any comments or questions for us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Or you can send us an email. The email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And up first this week is University College London reader in epidemiology and public health. That's Eleanor Hippenen, who also works on vitamin D. Hello, Eleanor. Hello, Chris. Thank you for being with us on this dark night, which is relevant with this subject. So how deficient are we? I think we are pretty deficient, especially um, this time of year. Everything, of course, depends on uh, which kind of thresholds we use to define vitamin D deficiency. If we uh, consider what many scientists quote as the optimal concentrations, up to 90% of us have serum levels that are lower than that. So where does the majority of the vitamin D that's washing around in my 90% deficient body uh, currently come from? Well, currently, it only comes from uh, any fish that you might be eating, because that's, uh, that's the main dietary source in the UK diet. Uh, we currently don't have any meaningful food fortification strategies, which uh, uh, leaves the UK diet uh, fairly deficient in vitamin D. During other times of year, so most notably in, in summer, we get by far most of the vitamin D through sunlight induced in the skin. But at the moment, there is no sunlight induced synthesis because of the, uh, the sun rays don't reach the earth in a right angle to induce any synthesis in the skin. So how does that process actually take place? What is the sunlight doing in the skin to make the vitamin D? Well, it um, converts vitamin D precursor that is present in the skin to uh, pro-vitamin D, which then can be uh, metabolized further on to vitamin D and uh, active metabolites. Is it any aspect of light or is it specifically one colour of light that does that best? It's, it's a certain wavelength of UVB radiation. So you actually need to see UVB in order to, to do it? That's right. So what times of year then do we get to the point where actually the sunlight has not got enough UVB in it to make the vitamin D we need? When we look at the um, uh, population studies, we see a very clear, beautiful pattern in, in um, serum 25 OHC concentrations, which are, which are the marker for, for vitamin D uh, nutritional or um, vitamin D status in general. If you look at those, the concentrations typically are at their highest um, around September time, which is reflecting the uh, 
uh, synthesis uh, during the whole of the summer. But um, uh, from October onwards, there starts to be a very steady decline in, in concentrations and they go down up until March after which the concentrations start slightly rising again. And that's a very, very strong pattern that we can see in the UK. I saw an advert in Australia when I was there, and it said, if you are shorter than your shadow, then you're probably not making enough vitamin D. Yeah, I think that's a nice rule of thumb. In other words, when we've got short days in winter, we just haven't got enough light input. So what sorts of complications and consequences are there of the population having this vitamin D deficiency? Sometimes, even even for a researcher who is working in the field, it can be uh, quite overwhelming the amount of health outcomes that are associated with vitamin D. It starts from bone health, extends to more or less any possible chronic disease as well as uh, infectious diseases. And I think that uh, for me it's always been quite um, comforting, if you like, to think about that uh, the vitamin D receptors which are required for the mediation of the hormonal actions of vitamin D, they are present in the, all over the body. So they are in uh, major organs such as the brain, heart, pancreas, skin, also in pregnancy-specific tissues such as the placenta and the uterine lining. And if there is a receptor for a hormone, then uh, most likely that hormone has, or at least has had, some sort of influence on the function or metabolism in that body. You said that the vast majority of the population are going to be getting quite vitamin D deficient as the winter progresses. So come March, what are the consequences for the average person in the population? What diseases tend to rear their ugly heads or become more common as a consequence of this? In population studies, we see um, associations with diabetes markers. We see um, increases in blood pressure. Uh, lung function is uh, improved after certain certain points. So various types of uh, consequences are potential. But the problem is that the, the causality underlying these associations, for many of these associations, hasn't been proven. Uh, it is uh, the randomized controlled trials have given very good evidence for outcomes such as osteoporosis and other which are uh, related to bone health. And more recently, there is a uh, Cochrane review, which is a meta-analysis of all randomized controlled trials, which showed that um, vitamin D supplementation was associated with an overall 6% reduction in mortality risk. So there is various types of uh, potential outcomes, but there is much for us to learn. And just very briefly, what about the disease that the guy we're going to be speaking with next, um, George Ebers, he works on multiple sclerosis. What about the association with that? Well, I haven't personally worked that much with multiple sclerosis, but I have worked more with type 1 diabetes, and that's really what initially set me to um, become interested in vitamin D. So we did this study using... um, birth cohort from uh, northern Finland, which was initiated in the 1960s when they used to have this policy of giving very high dose vitamin D supplementation to infants. So they gave 2,000 international units, which is five times more than currently recommended to all infants, or at least that was the recommendation. And when we looked at the association between the vitamin D supplementation in infancy and their subsequent risk of uh, type 1 diabetes, there was really a strikingly strong reduction. The risk was 80% lower for those um, infants who had received vitamin D supplementation compared to those who hadn't. 
there was also independent um, evidence for dose-dependent effects, so that when we only looked at those children who all had received vitamin D supplementation, the association was stronger the higher the dosage had been. So that was very uh, striking indication from an observational study. And type 1 diabetes is very closely related to multiple sclerosis because they are both autoimmune conditions and many of the etiological um, pathways would apply equally to both of them. And we'll follow that up in just a second. Elena, thank you very much. That's Elena Hippenen from University College London. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. And if you would like to join in the discussion, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join the discussion on our Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. So why are people with low vitamin D levels at risk of multiple sclerosis? One person who's been studying this extensively and is now urging the government to fortify food in Scotland with vitamin D to protect people is Oxford University neurologist George Ebers. Hello, George. Hello, Hannah. Hello. So, first of all, can you explain to us what actually is multiple sclerosis? Well, it's the commonest chronic neurological disease that affects young adults. We think it's autoimmune, and for most people over time, it leads to progressive disability. Okay, and so why would vitamin D levels be linked to the immune system and also the brain as well? I think what we we can say is that the the circumstantial evidence has always been in favor of some relationship between MS risk and sunshine. And going back 50 years ago, we knew that, that if you were from the British Isles and you moved to Australia or you moved to South Africa, your risk of MS plummeted. It's very clear cut. And so that implicated sunshine even back then. And gradually over time, we've learned that the main biological effects of sunshine are mediated through vitamin D, and evidence has come in, which is now directly implicating vitamin D as as a main environmental risk factor in the disease. And so what kind of evidence has been coming in? Has it been epidemiological studies, for example, the ones that Elena was was talking about, and are there genetic studies as well? There are. It comes from several sources. So that just on the epidemiological side, if you look at the the fine mapping, if you like, of the distribution of MS in a country like France where, where people don't move very much, you can show that the pattern of MS occurrence in the various sort of regions of France fits almost exactly the distribution of ultraviolet radiation. And if you take the end of the winter, say February, the end of the winter for France, then in fact the UV radiation map, if you like, which is generated by the satellites that are orbiting the Earth, maps very, very much onto the prevalence of MS by, by region. That was the, the epidemiological part. Now, the, the genetics part, of course, has been much more recent, and uh, several things have happened. The main gene region that disposes of MS turns out to be regulated by vitamin D, and then a number of the small genes that make you susceptible turn out to have a disproportionate regulation by vitamin D. And, and I suppose the most recent thing is that uh, we've shown that the, the enzyme, which is the rate-limiting step, the thing that really determines how much active vitamin D you got, turns out to be associated with the risk in, in, in the way we did this, we looked for people who had a deficiency of this enzyme for genetic reasons. They had a mutation in the, in, in the gene, which markedly reduced the enzyme activity, and we found this was very strongly associated with MS. And in what way was it associated with MS? The way we did this is that we uh, searched for parents of MS patients who had one normal gene for the enzyme and then one abnormal gene, And then we looked to see in the MS offspring 
which they had inherited. Now, the odds are 50-50. They would get the normal gene or the abnormal gene. And we found 35 parents with this, this defective gene on one side and one of their chromosomes and a normal gene on the other side. And then when we examined the MS offspring, they, I mean, if they, for them to have inherited the abnormal gene all 35 times would be like flipping a coin 35 times and getting 35 heads. And that's exactly what we found. We found that in, invariably this was transmitted. So this is, a, I think, a strongest association, maybe the strongest association that's ever been reported in one of these complex diseases. And it's really now making us think in terms of causality rather than association. And can you t- now, now talk about what this gene does, the biochemical studies that, that link the genes and multiple sclerosis and vitamin D together? So what, one of the things that that's sort of uh, important to point out is is that maybe vitamin D shouldn't have really been called a vitamin anyway. It's really more like more like a hormone. And so in contrast to something like vitamin E or vitamin A, which is really fulfills the traditional definition of a vitamin, something you take in small amounts externally important in, in metabolism, vitamin D is something, you know, you, you, you can make yourself. You regulate it very carefully. And we've had millions of years of evolution to develop strategies for regulating vitamin D. And so... The way it works is that you've got the precursor in your skin, as Elena said, and it's acted on by, by sunshine, ultraviolet radiation, converted to an active form. But there's an important step, an additional step, which is regulated by the enzyme we we're just talking about. It's called 125-alpha-hydroxylase, and it's the one that converts vitamin D to the active form. And so we have... Um, the ability to control vitamin D, and this is going to be relevant to a number of questions, I think, about how much to take and so forth. Because in fact, the the, the internal system that we have developed over many, many years actually regulates this very tightly. And what do you think then about vitamin D supplements in the food? Well, I <laughs> this is I've not come to this uh, quickly. I have to say it's, it's over a large number of years, and I, I think what what I've said uh, to the Scottish government, along with a number of other people who are there to advise them, was that um, we thought that their solution was probably best reached by administering it to the population, and that's taking into account a number of factors: uh, the level of deficiency, the likelihood that uh, it's related to a number of their diseases. And the you know the, the the very very low risk that's involved, the the fact that it's it's dirt cheap and and so forth. So all those things, not to mention human nature, telling people to take things doesn't always work, as you know. And so that was our conclusion. Okay, thank you, George. And we might pick up on some of these issues later on in the show. So that was Oxford University neurologist George Ebers. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. Let's take a look at some of the stories that are making scientific headlines around the world this week. Seaweed looks set to ignite a boom in biofuel production, and that's thanks to a modified strain of the bacterium E. coli, into which scientists have engineered a taste for fermenting seafood, would you believe? Now, this is a paper It's published in the journal Science this week. It's by Adam Wargaki and his colleagues. They're at the Bioarchitecture Lab, B-A-L, which is a company based in California. And... 
Why they've come at this is that they argue that if we want to make biofuels, at the moment the sources of biofuels are plants grown on arable land, sugar cane, sugar beet, and also maize, corn crops, lignocellulosic ethanol. In other words, you take the, the woody bits we don't want to eat of plants and you turn that into alcohol and then you turn that into fuel. The problem is that this means that there's now a competition between growing food and growing fuel, and that has the consequence of pushing up the prices of food and that upsets people. The one thing that people haven't considered, though, is what about the ocean? Because no one is really competing for the use of the ocean in terms of the plant life it can nurture, and that's where they've come at this. Seaweed grows beautifully well in the ocean, and as they point out, it doesn't compete and need any arable land, it doesn't need any fertiliser. In fact, it can even clean up the ocean by mopping up spare nitrogen that may have washed into the ocean in rivers, and you don't need to irrigate the ocean because it's got water already. So can we get useful energy out of seaweed? The problem is that seaweed stores all of its energy in the form of a complex carbohydrate or sugar called alginate. And this is very difficult for things to break down, and it's very difficult for individual bugs to break it down and then ferment it into something useful like alcohol. That is, if you just start with normal bugs. Now, what this group have done is to take E. coli, which is effectively what we use in many laboratories and we have living inside many of us, in fact, probably all of us, and they have endowed this bacterium genetically with some additional metabolic knives and forks, which they've robbed from other microorganisms that have the ability to do useful jobs. So the first thing they did was they went to a bacterium called Pseudoautromonas, and they borrowed from that an enzyme which can be secreted, which breaks down these alginates into small chunks, which are more digestible. Then they found another organism which occasionally actually causes problems for oysters, and it's called Vibrio splendidus. It's actually a relative of Vibrio cholerae, the thing that causes cholera for us. And this particular Vibrio has got a whole bunch of genes in it which enable it to bring inside cells, so like transport, chunks of these alginates, then break them down and then turn them into other useful carbon sources that can be turned into alcohol. And they made these modified E. coli this way, and in tests that they announced in the journal Science this week, they were able to convert with 80% efficiency these alginates in seaweed. They infected a trial using brown seaweed, the, the Latin name is Saccharina japonica. They got a 4.7% concentration of alcohol out within just two days out of this with these modified E. coli. And they also point out in their paper that in a feasibility study, one hectare of seawater or of, of sea area could actually generate 59 tonnes in a year of dry seaweed matter. Um, which would translate into 19,000 litres of ethanol, which is actually an efficiency or a productivity which is twice that achievable with sugarcane and five times that achievable with maize. So we could be about to see seaweed being exploited by cleverly modified bacteria like these that will solve our energy problem at least for a little while. Hannah. Cheers, Chris. Well, from energy to memory, a study published this week in the Journal of Neuroscience indicates that sleep can reinforce unpleasant memories. Remaining awake, on the other hand, helps you to forget. University of Massachusetts Amherst scientist Rebecca Spencer and her colleagues showed a group of volunteers a series of images, and she then asked them to rate how emotionally harrowing they found the images to be. Twelve hours later, after one group had been allowed to sleep for eight hours, whilst the other group were forced to stay awake, the volunteers were then asked to re-examine the pictures. With sleep, the um, individuals pretty much remembered most of those items from 12 hours prior. That stands in contrast to the group that stayed awake. They actually couldn't remember as many of the items. So that's how we could say then that sleep actually protected the memory for the items. By looking at the change in how they rated those images, 
the individuals that stay awake actually find those negative items to be less negative. The people who went to sleep, though, still found the images traumatic. The researchers controlled for the fact that the sleep-deprived group were not simply too tired to respond to the pictures emotionally by repeating the experiment with exactly the same outcome at different times of day. So these results might explain why some people find it difficult to fall asleep after a traumatic experience, because this may be the brain's way of stopping you remembering something that would be better off forgotten. There is this natural response for us to go through bouts of insomnia following something traumatic. And I think that our results argue that that's actually a healthy biological response. And that is to go through a period of sleeplessness. We shouldn't necessarily treat that right away. We shouldn't necessarily give the person sleep medicines to get them to sleep more because these long bouts of wakefulness might actually allow the person to reduce their memory and also reduce that emotional response that they feel to any flashbacks or memories of the event. So, contrary to the prevailing view that all will seem better after a good night's sleep, it looks like precisely the opposite is actually what the doctor ordered for people exposed to traumatic events. Hannah, thank you very much. I'll sleep on that one. Now, prior to a billion years ago, all of the life on Earth we had consisted of single-celled organisms. And then something happened to trigger squads of these cells to team up together to produce the first multicellular organisms, a bit like our bodies. And this was a watershed moment for evolution of life on Earth. Now researchers at the University of Minnesota have managed to make yeast cells do something similar. But in this case, it didn't take them billions of years, it took them 60 days. And with us to explain what he's found is Michael Travisano. So how did you do this experiment? The experiment was uh, pretty simple. We just grew yeast as we normally do in the lab, um, shaking. And then every day we let them sit on the bench and we had a race to the bottom. And whatever yeast got to the bottom first, we took those and started the culture again. And we did this for 60 days, every day doing this race to the bottom. And um, unlike Galileo's experiment, where it doesn't matter how heavy you are, uh, for the yeast cells, the, the bigger, heavier ones get to the bottom first, and so by, that, by using this mechanism of selection, we were able to select for, for things that were big to get to the bottom. So there's a strong selective pressure for bigger cells, but why does that translate also into clumps of cells, cells linking together? There's two ways that the, the yeast could get bigger. One, they could just get a bigger cell, and we did see some cells get quite large. But it's much easier uh, physiologically um, and, and, and via adaptation to just have your daughter cells stay attached to you when you reproduce. And so we'd end up with clusters of daughter cells attached to their daughter cells, attached to their daughter cells, and whole big family groups getting to the bottom very, very quickly. And what was the relationships between these cells? Were they literally just sticking together, or did they really begin to behave as though they were a family of cells where one cell did one job and another cell next door to it relied on it to do that job and did a complementary job? Well, originally they all did more or less the same thing, that the, the whole family group got to the bottom at the same rate as each other, and that was the big selective benefit. But as we ran the experiment uh, along, we observed that a small fraction, about 5%, would go through a kind of cellular suicide, and that suicide promoted the kind of adaptation of the whole group. It allowed the, the group to reproduce faster. So we began to see some differentiation as we ran the experiment through. Have you interrogated the cells to see in what way they were changing to enable them to do these different jobs? How was it arising? Mostly we made videos, to be honest, and we watched the behaviour of the groups as they grew in our culture, and we could see how the reproduction was happening, that the, the number of cells in, the, in, in one of these uh, multicellular individuals would increase, 
and then it would, it would cause a pressure and a daughter clump would break off. And we were able to identify that the targets, the, the cells that were the most likely to uh, allow for that breaking off were the ones that were dying. That was the mechanism that we, that we did the most interrogation by. The thing is, if I look at my own body, there are bits of me which, if other bits of me don't work, those bits are inviable. So if you took your clumps of yeast cells and broke them up, would the cells then lose viability because they didn't have their neighbour to sustain some function that they themselves were now deficient in? A bit like if I took one of my organs, it can't survive without the blood supply provided by a blood vessel and so on. Right, right. So um, these are very simple multicellular organisms, and so they're much simpler than us. With very simple other extant natural multicellular organisms, if you break them up, you can often recover the whole individual from a single cell. And, and you can even do this in the lab with plants. Um, and like those natural experiments, we can do the same thing. If we break them up into individual cells, except for the dead ones, the dead ones don't do anything, then we'll, then we'll recover the entire multicellular individual. And just to finish us off, what do you think this tells us about how the process probably did happen back in evolutionary time? I think it tells us that you can very simply evolve multicellular in, uh, organisms um, just by a, a very slight change in the relationship between a repro unicellular reproductive event, that just by not letting your daughter or your granddaughters and so on kind of go off, but by sticking, by sticking together, by having a cooperative strategy, that you can evolve multicellularity readily. Michael, thank you very much. That's Professor Michael Travisano. He's from the University of Minnesota. And you can read the work he was talking about, published this week in the journal PNAS. Hannah. And now with a look at what else is making scientific headlines this week, here's Mira Synthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. A comet diving into and disintegrating within the sun's atmosphere has been observed by scientists in the US. The comet C-2011N3 is one of the so-called Kreutz family of comets, which pass extremely close to the sun's surface. Over 2,000 of them have been detected in the past 15 years, but their paths through the sun's atmosphere were previously uncharted. And now, thanks to NASA's Solar Dynamic, Solar Heliospheric and Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatories, the self-destructive path of this most recent comet has been observed. Carrie Liss from the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory comments on the discovery. It's streaked at a million miles per hour through the sun's atmosphere called the corona, which is a million degree plasma. It took half an hour to cross the face of the sun before it disappeared. So you can imagine this giant dirty snowball that's been around for four and a half billion years since the beginning of the solar system streaking through this hellish environment and dissipating and rotating and fragmenting and breaking up and finally just totally being destroyed. Watching how this comet falls apart and measuring the light that comes from it can tell us an awful lot about how the comet is put together. Exercise induces the clearance and recycling of components within our cells, resulting in protection against metabolic disorders such as diabetes. Working with mice, Kong Kong He and colleagues from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center found that exercise triggers a process called autophagy, the self-clearance and catabolism of certain cell components. This is mainly triggered within skeletal and cardiac muscle to enable increased endurance and glucose metabolism, whilst simultaneously protecting against certain metabolic conditions. So our study helped develop the concept and increasing autophagy activity in general may be beneficial for combating insulin resistance, obesity, and maybe other related metabolic complications. 
an autophagy activation can mimic the beneficial effects from exercise. So the dream is sort of to develop a reagent that induces autophagy, can act as an exercise mimic. So we can apply it to those patients who are physically confined and can, cannot exercise by themselves. Citizen scientists could lead the way for earthquake research and detection in the future. Citizen science involves members of the public reporting on and collecting data to aid scientific research. Recent electronic applications in the field of seismology include the Quake Catcher program, turning your computer into a seismometer and placing it on a global network, as well as more mobile apps, such as the iShake Cal app for iPhones, collecting ground-shaking measurements. Richard Allen from the University of California, Berkeley, explains their importance in seismology today. People have collected relatively small amounts of data and they're using it to locate earthquakes, to map out the earthquake rupture propagation across a fault plane. They're using it to generate alerts before the shaking um, is actually felt. We could go from having seismic networks that have hundreds of stations to seismic networks that literally have millions of stations. So that's a massive increase in the number of uh, seismic recordings that we have, and that has knock-on effects for all of the approaches that we take to mitigate earthquakes. And finally, the mystery of why the dung beetle dances has been solved by scientists at the University of Lund. Dung beetles form balls from piles of dung, which they then roll a safe distance away to feed on without competition. The beetles are known to climb on top of their ball and spin around along certain points of their route, and the reasons behind this have previously been unknown. Working with these beetles in the lab, Emily Baird has discovered that this dance is all about the beetles' orientation. This dance behaviour is a strategy that the beetles are using to overcome unexpected disturbances to their roll path. We've induced them to fall off a ramp, so they lose control of the ball. So their orientation is messed up when this happens. So once they've become disoriented, the dance helps them to relocate their original roll bearing so that they can then continue in the same direction that they took. So they make sure that they don't end up rolling back, straight back into the dung pile, which is what they're trying to get away from. And the work is published this week in the journal PLOS One. Mira Synthalingam. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. As we reported here on The Naked Scientists not so long ago, 15 new species were recently discovered on the seabed of the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. The new species were all found on the East Scotia Ridge, which is an area on the ocean floor that is littered with hydrothermal vents. The UK-led project involved universities, the National Oceanography Centre and the British Antarctic Survey, as well as a collaboration with Woods Hole Oceanography Centre in the United States. Planet Earth's Sue Nelson has been speaking to two of the team involved, marine biologist Katrina Linzer and to geologist Dr Ali Graham, who are both from the British Antarctic Survey. What I have brought out today are samples of the animals we collected. For example, the hoff crab. <laughs> so the what famous hoff crab. That could easily fit in the palm of my hand. They're yeah. white and pale, presumably because there's no light down yeah. there. This is a small female. She's about six centimetres tall. The large males were up to 12 centimetres tall and they had big claws. But also the females, you can clearly see 
a really hairy chest and along the bottom of their legs. So it's not just the males then that had the hairy chest, it's the females No, the other females have it too. Ali, tell me a little bit about where these creatures were found because they're besides some very unusual structures called hydrothermal vents. The East Glacier Ridge itself is an area where the seafloor, the the lithosphere, which is the hard outer shell of the Earth, is actually extending and stretching. And where this happens, magma from the mantle actually upwells and along the ridge you get volcanic activity and because the crust has a lot of water in it that water is is heated geothermally like geysers and eventually through fissures and through fractures and faults in the crust this hot water finds its way out and it, it finds its way out through vents and these vents look almost like a sort of termites nest tall tapering structures but with these enormous plumes of smoke coming out which i, I assume are sulfurous Exactly. Um, it's a very good description. They are tall, conical sort of chimneys formed of precipitates that come out of the water that's emerging from the, the ocean floor. You've got a couple of other little jars here. The piece I love, personally love most is in this large top deck. Because here, what you actually now see emerging is the top of the chimney. And in the top here, you see a hole of about four millimetres This is where the hot, smoking hot water would come out of temperatures up to 380 degrees. Wow, so that's the top of a hydrothermal vent. Yes. Next to it are the barnacles and then all the other creatures. Ali, you were also involved as a geologist in sort of mapping the the ocean floor itself. That's right, yes. Over the past few years, we've had two research trips to the East Coast Ridge. The first one... We aim to actually map out the sort of regional seafloor. We did this using sonars from the underside of our ship. On our second, we took the remotely operated vehicle, ISIS, down to areas where we we knew there were vents, and we did even more detailed mapping of the seafloor with a a smaller sonar. And what resolution then did you produce? Initially, our maps were maybe down to, say, a 20-metre sort of size, so we could see things that were larger than around 20 metres on the seafloor. But not necessarily a hydrothermal vent. Well, the vents themselves are only less than a metre in width, so we would have totally missed them, even from our our ship mapping, the first initial mapping we did. The second trip, we could actually make maps down to things almost the size of a shoebox. So we actually started picking up blips on our map, and when we looked at them in detail in in three dimensions, we could see these were the actual individual chimneys themselves. So the geophysics actually directed us straight to where these vents were. It's an obvious question. For scientists, it's like, well, new species, wow. But is it important on the grand scheme of things? We know from some Antarctic deep water species that they seem to be the origin of life of the deep sea fauna globally. We don't know this about the hydrothermal vents. We know that in the last 30 million years, the Antarctic marine fauna was almost buried off from the non-Antarctic through the cold water and the Antarctic circum-Antarctic current. These are so specifically adapted animals. We have lots of hydrothermal vents north of the Antarctic. These were the first found in the Antarctic. How do our species link in to the global ones? Are they the ancestors of everything or not? We don't know. And then the big question is, where did life on Earth originate at the start? Could it have been in the deep waters in very nowadays toxic, sulfuric environments? This is why this research is so exciting and important. 
Catherine Linzer and Ali Graham from the British Antarctic Survey. And more new species are expected very soon. A longer version of that report from Sue Nelson can be heard on the latest edition of the Planet Earth podcast, and you can find a link to that on our webpage or via Planet Earth online. Look them up. In a second, we'll be looking at the link between vitamin D and cancer and then answering some of your questions. But first, Hannah? Well, apart from food, as we've already heard in the show, a major source of vitamin D is exposure to sunlight, which makes the hormone in the skin. So some sun is good, but therein lies the rub, because sunlight can also cause skin cancer. Well, to find out what's best, we've asked our own Dr Kat Arney from Cancer Research UK to take a look at the evidence. Despite what some people claim about the cancer-preventive properties of vitamin D, in reality the scientific evidence is much more confused. For a start, most of the studies that have looked at the links between vitamin D and cancer suffer from quite poor methodology. This means their methods aren't sufficiently rigorous to draw any strong conclusions. For example, most studies are what we call ecological studies. They look at how rates of different cancers change depending on where in the world you live and find that the further north from the equator you go, the more likely people are to develop or die from many types of cancer. The big idea here is that the sun's rays are weaker at higher latitudes, so people living in northerly places make less vitamin D. And it's this that, in theory, accounts for the higher rates of cancer. But in fact, it's really hard to tell what anyone's individual vitamin D level is based on just where they live. Everyone's skin is different and makes different amounts of vitamin D with the same sun exposure. These studies also tend not to adjust for other things that could explain the difference, such as what people eat, how active they are, how wealthy they are, and their behaviour like tanning, taking sunny holidays or working outside. All these things have a much bigger effect on a person's vitamin D levels than just geography. In terms of vitamin D preventing cancer, the strongest evidence is for bowel cancer so far. It seems that low vitamin D is associated with a higher bowel cancer risk, but it's not clear whether the vitamin is actually preventing the disease or whether it's representing another aspect of health. And the evidence for a role of vitamin D in other types of cancer varies from non-existent to very limited. Trials testing whether vitamin D supplements can reduce the risk of cancer haven't really shown an effect, but there's also problems with the way these studies were done. So what do we know? It's clear that we all need a bit of sunshine in our lives and that vitamin D is important for general health. But when it comes to cancer risk, there's one long-known and very strong association between cancer and UV light from the sun and sunbeds, and that's with skin cancer. Excessive UV exposure, particularly getting sunburnt, significantly increases the risk of skin cancer, including malignant melanoma, and that's the most dangerous form of skin cancer. For most people, it should be possible to strike a balance between making enough vitamin D and not raising your risk of skin cancer, although how much vitamin D you can make through your skin depends on your skin type and your behaviour, such as whether you stay in the house all the time, do you wear thick clothing that covers your whole body. But it's important to remember that the time in the sun needed to make enough vitamin D is usually short, and it's less than the amount of time it takes your skin to redden or burn. So there's no need to roast yourself to a lobster-like shade of red in an attempt to boost your vitamin D, it won't help. And not only will you be increasing your risk of skin cancer, you'll also be helping your skin along the way to that lovely leather handbag look. 
Hmm. Thank you very much, Katani. Now, with such confusing and contradictory evidence about the link between vitamin D and cancer, scientists now need to find out what the precise nature of that link is. Professor Sir John Byrne is a clinical geneticist at Newcastle University, and for the last 20 years he's been leading an international consortium looking at cancer prevention in groups of people with a genetic predisposition to develop bowel cancers. Last year they confirmed that aspirin can protect these individuals. Now they're turning their attention to vitamin D. Uh, Hello, John. Hello. So who are these patients that you're looking at? Well, I've been working, uh, as you say, for 20 years with people with hereditary predisposition to bowel cancer in particular, and they have a a problem with genes called mismatch repair genes, and they can't fix spelling mistakes in their DNA. Uh, And if they inherit that gene, they have about a 50% chance of developing cancer, mainly of the bowel and also of the womb. Uh, And obviously they're very keen to help with uh, attempts to find ways to reduce the risk of cancer, which is of relevance to them and their families, but also it's relevant to the rest of us because... About one in 20 of us will develop a colon cancer in our lifetime and about a sixth of those have a problem with the mismatch repair genes. It's just that they acquire it during our lifetime rather than it being an inherited problem. So these are a sort of model group in which we can study interventions that you couldn't really test in a a rigorous way in the general population because cancer happens so slowly in the general population, you'd have to do vast studies over decades. And as you say, what we showed with the aspirin study, where we gave people aspirin for two years, uh, was that after five years, we had reduced their bowel cancer risk by over 60%. Uh, And that was on top of the benefits of giving them regular colonoscopy and removing polyps. So that was a huge uh, boost for our idea of these genetically targeted trials. So in the next five years or so, in addition to comparing different doses of aspirin to see if we can get away with less. We'd also like to see if we can give people vitamin D and whether that would give us the rigorous randomised controlled trial data which would justify us giving these patients uh, and their families vitamin D on a regular basis. Could we, before we dwell on the vitamin D, could we just have a look at what you think the mechanism is for why aspirin protected those people? Because that's a dramatic difference, 60% reduction. It is, and in fact that evidence has been building over 25 years. In fact the story is very parallel to vitamin D in a way because the observational studies of people who were using a lot of aspirin-like drugs uh, demonstrated that that there was a massive uh, effect, but we couldn't get randomised data until we did our study which has really nailed nailed it. The answer is that that aspirin, um, again somewhat like vitamin D, is probably an essential nutrient, something you need from the outside, and it has a wide range of effects. One of them in fact is to promote programmed cell death or apoptosis, again, like vitamin D. And plants make aspirin like or salicylate, which is the core of aspirin, uh, in order to trigger programmed cell death when they develop infections. It's their way of defending themselves. So, interestingly, up until uh, 100 years ago, we'd have had quite a lot of salicylate in our diet because of eating wilder foods. Now that we grow everything under control, they don't get exposed to infection, so the salicylate never forms. There's reasons, obviously, in the laboratory, there's lots of evidence in the lab that says aspirin has uh, a number of other effects, particularly blocking inflammation, which is a part of the cancer process, so that might also be part of it. And what sort of dose of the aspirin do you need in order to get these effects? Would the same doses that are effective in preventing or reducing the risk of heart attacks and strokes also be effective in the prevention of bowel cancer, or do you need a bigger dose? 
That's the $64,000 question. We used two aspirins a day and got this big effect. Peter Rothwell did some wonderful studies over the last few years uh, looking at people who took part in the very early aspirin studies back in the 80s uh, and found that those people had fewer cancers 10 years later when he checked them on the cancer registries. Now, just last week, I was on BBC talking with Professor Ray from St George's who had not found an effect because he had looked uh, at a meta-analysis, which we're going to talk about in a moment, by pooling all the data on aspirin and cancer and heart attacks to see whether people at low risk should take it. And he didn't see a benefit, but that was because those studies only followed people for six years. So the problem with these sort of studies is you have to follow them for a very long time to see the benefit. In our high-risk patients, they develop cancer much faster. That's why we were able to see the effect in, in, in only five years. But in the general population, you'd have to wait 10 years to see the benefit. And that, of course, has general relevance to this evening's conversation because when you do preventive work, you might have to wait a decade to see the benefit, and you can't actually see the people who didn't get the disease. They never knew they were going to get it and they were saved, so to speak. So all we ever see are the side effects. So a lot of the preoccupation has to be with is it safe? And I was interested in George's observation that vitamin D does seem to be an extremely safe supplement. The body can handle it extremely well, so that although there is a little bit of evidence to suggest people on very high doses of vitamin D might have a slightly increased risk of cancer, certainly at any sort of sensible dose, the evidence does seem to be building that vitamin D is very clearly beneficial. And how is it first spotted that vitamin D does seem to have this protective effect in bowel cancer? People have been looking for clues to explain the, the strange distribution of cancer for many years. We should, at this point, by the way, just say a word for Casimir Funk, who a 100 years ago actually coined the term vitamins or vital amines he derived it from when he discovered thiamine. And I learned that from reading Bill Bryson, by the way. What he realised then, it's interesting to realise that up until 100 years ago, we didn't realise that it was not just the fact that you ate a lot of food. It was what was in the food that mattered. Uh, and, of course, we knew about scurvy long before, but it was only generalised in the 20th century that there are these series of elements that we needed that would be beneficial to us. How vitamin D affects cancer, there, again, I mentioned earlier about programmed cell death. Vitamin D might well have a key part to play there. But the point is uh, that vitamin D is a, a crucial component of our body. It, it's not truly a vitamin, as George said earlier, because we do manufacture it, or in fact we should manufacture it from exposure to light. And it gets into the cells where it meets the vitamin D receptor, and it has an impact on a whole range of genetic mechanisms and cellular mechanisms. So it's not at all surprising that if you're deficient in it, then you might see all manner of side effects or, or effects on the body, in the same way as if you take away vitamin C, people's teeth fall out and all sorts of things happen. So these chemicals are an integral part of our body which we expect to be there and when they're missing all sorts of things fall apart and you know the immune system being one of the most obvious ones and, and there's lots of interest in the fact that vitamin D deficiency might be a factor in, in uh, people developing infections in the winter for example so you can see a sort of story building uh, that vitamin D could well be playing in a whole series of different scenarios where it could have an impact on our ability to either prevent cancer or destroy cancer. You obviously don't know the answer yet, but what are you now setting up to try to find out whether vitamin D is going to make a difference? Essentially, what we now know from the very beautiful study of two VN colleagues uh, doing the meta-analysis last year is that there's about a 5% cut in cancer 
per hundred units per litre of vitamin D in your, in your bloodstream. So we can work with that and do power analysis, and that will tell us how many thousand people we need to treat for how many years, and we're working on that at the moment. But with the aspirin dose finding study, we're going to be looking for 3,000 gene carriers. We'll supplement them and then follow them for five to ten years. Uh, and that is the only way we'll absolutely nail to the ground whether vitamin D can prevent cancer at a sufficient level to justify supplementing the population. But in the meantime, I think clearly there's a strong evidence for self-medication for those who, certainly those who are not exposed to sun and those with darker skin who are living now a long way from, from the equator. Thank you very much, John Byrne from the University of Newcastle. I understand John has also got some good news to celebrate because he's celebrating the birth of Tess. Um, I think she should pop out today, John. She arrived about an hour ago. She's your granddaughter. She's my granddaughter, fourth grandchild, yeah. Born in Scotland. There we go. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. We're talking about the science of vitamin D this week. Our guests with us, Eleanor Hippenham from UCL, George Ebers from Oxford University and John Byrne from Newcastle University. And the three of you, we have a huge number of questions that have been pouring in. Mike in Suffolk was saying, your expert was explaining about vitamin D in fish. He wonders, Eleanor, what the best source of, of white fish or oily fish might be to get his vitamin D. What would you recommend? It's a fat-soluble vitamin, so you need to have fat in the fish in order to um, get vitamin D. So all fatty fish, such as um, salmon, mackerel, are very good. The taste pretty good too. This is probably something you could touch on for us, John. Nathaniel Bolt is asking, can you overdose on vitamin D? Since you were talking about um, perhaps taking it, and James Townley has sent us a Twitter message at Naked Scientist, could too much vitamin D be toxic, like too much vitamin A, he wonders. What do you think? Well, yes, if you take very large volumes of, or quantities of vitamin D, you get hypercalcemia and that can have adverse effects and indeed can cause kidney failure if you really overdo it. But as George was saying, uh, it's actually it's very hard to get anywhere near those levels. You have to really work quite hard at it. Uh, and uh, for the general population, uh, the sort of supplements that we would get from our diet and, and from adding a tablet of vitamin D to our routine uh, are not going to take you anywhere near that level. Do you want to come in on this, George, and maybe add something to it? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. He, he, John's expressed it very, very well, and uh, this is uh, this, the safety here has been demonstrated in, in volunteers. So, it, the Institute of Medicine recommendation was up to four thousand units a day for for adults. The safety factor is huge, so that volunteers have been given hundred and over a hundred thousand units a day when it's been gradually increased over time. Which is, you know, let's say, tw- you know, 25 times the Institute of Medicine maximum recommendation, and no ill effects were were were, were seen. So, if you increase the amount of water you took a day by 25 fold, then it would be fatal. But you can increase the amount of vitamin D slowly, and in fact, no side effects have been found. Now, I'm not recommending people take that, but I just want to illustrate the fact that there's a big safety factor. Mm-hmm. So we've had a question from Gwen Smith Olson via Facebook and she asks, can we please address the American, Brit, Canadian, etc. of African descent and vitamin D deficiencies issue? So, Eleanor, would you be able to discuss this? Skin colouration is the most important personal characteristics which is affecting how likely you are to be vitamin D deficient or how efficiently you can produce vitamin D by your skin. So, uh, for example, we were looking at the, um, this cohort of 45-year-old um, uh, individuals. And if um, among the white-skinned individuals we had um, less than 10% who were severely vitamin D deficient, by severe I mean uh, uh, people who were at the increased risk of um, uh, rickets or uh, bone deformities, 
um, in um, individuals who were from non-Caucasian ethnic groups, there was 40% of them. So it's a massively strong risk factor for vitamin D deficiency. What about the other cultural aspect of this? People who are not necessarily very darkly skinned but choose to cover themselves from head to foot in very dark fabrics so they don't see the sun. What about that practice? Yeah, that's of course, a, it's, a, it's a combination of different things and uh, you can't produce uh, vitamin D by your skin without exposing some of your skin to the sunlight. Do you want to come in on this, John? Yes, I think you're, you raised the very important point of the additional cultural burden of uh, concealment, if you like, uh, from the sun, particularly families with uh, Muslim extraction are at increased risk. And clearly, the common sense thing is to add a dietary supplement of vitamin D. It's very straightforward. Uh, but I think it, it's also worth just generally picking up this point uh, about our evolution. It's very clear that as we migrated out of Africa, we got paler the further north we went, uh, and that had to have been a Darwinian selection process. Uh, and almost certainly, now that we know so much about vitamin D, the strong argument is that as we got further away from the equator, we had to get paler to remain healthy uh, because our vitamin D levels were, were at risk. So I think that uh, both in terms of the genetic predisposition, if you like, to vitamin D problems uh, and the cultural problems mean that anyone from ethnic minorities should think very seriously about taking a vitamin D supplement. Strongly my point. Keith Jackson, again via Facebook, says, I'm a depressive and I tend to develop SAD, so seasonal affective disorder, in the winter. Do the high-intensity light boxes that are supposed to allow the skin to generate vitamin D work... Would that help to raise our vitamin D levels? Well, I, I think there are a variety of different kind, kinds of light boxes, but I think in order, just light, ordinarily, unless it's got ultraviolet radiation, is, is not going to generate you know, any any vitamin D. So that, I mean, people can, can go to tanning salons and so forth, and, and that will, will, will in fact generate vitamin D. But the, the downside of this, of course, is that it may have the consequences of being exposed to sun, so that... The way around the dilemma, it seems to me, is, is if you want to increase your vitamin D uh, content, then just simply take it by mouth as regular vitamin D3. Uh, Eleanor, when I first spoke with you, we were laughing about relative positions of offices, whether they have windows or not. We've had a text message in from someone saying, can you actually get vitamin D from the sun that streams through your window? Not unless your window is open. So uh, <laughs> the window glass does block the UVB radiation. Because it soaks it up. And Paul Harrington has got in touch and said, if we get vitamin D from UV light, does that mean that high-factor sunblocks we're encouraged to use now, well, in the summer anyway, he points out tongue-in-cheek, are detrimental to our health? I think that uh, everything needs to be considered in a balance. And uh, there is a very good reason why sunblocks are recommended, but um, a common sense should be applied um, in, in using those as well. I don't put the sunblock on before I go outside, but I go first outside and um, only after being there for 10-15 minutes I apply the sunblock when um, I both allow for some vitamin D synthesis in the skin and as well as protecting myself from any excess in uh, sunlight. Thanks, Eleanor. And I think this is a question for you, John. So Jen Jackson has got in touch again via Facebook and she'd like to know, 
whether vitamin D in tablet form is a genuine, decent alternative to the natural UV form? I, I think the answer is yes, uh, it is an, an acceptable alternative. The, the fact is it is very difficult in our modern world to persuade people to get out into the sunshine. I mean, it, it, that's, that is the best thing to do, to get out into the fresh air, get exercise as well as uh, getting sun exposure, uh, and obviously that, that's going to affect things like obesity and so on. Uh, but the reality is that, especially as we've heard in the in the winter months in the northern climes, you're still not going to get enough vitamin D from that source. So you really have to take a supplement uh, unless you have a diet that is very rich in oily fish, uh, which uh, would give you a natural supply. And uh, our last one for this week, coming your way, George, James Veal says, I'm not happy with the Scottish government who want to fortify even more foods with their version of vitamin D. Surely we can source our own if we want it. Chemically produced vitamin D will be no better than most of the other chemically produced products that people try to force on us. What do you think? Well, chemically, it's a very simple molecule, and it's, it's identical, really, to what you make in your skin. So I don't think there's any any reason to think that it you know, would be any different. But I think the issue of supplementing you know, the population is, is, is awkward. Despite the fact there's a double-blind control study showing that folate prevents neural tube defects, it's not added to the food, and, and one can only compare uh, what happened in, in, in America. Now, I'm a Canadian, but, but I have to say that the way they dealt with this was, was, was the way it probably should have been done, which is that they supplemented the food within a couple of years of the, the results coming available, and they were able to show that you know as, as much as 80% of neural tube defects were prevented. Uh, here, the, these issues have been more controversial, and um, just the fact that people want to put supplements in doesn't mean that it's bad. Uh, there are lots of examples where supplementation is very useful. Iodine and salt is a good example. No one argues about that. And I think in a few years, nobody's going to be arguing about some of these others as well. George Ebers, thank you. Right, on the subject of hard questions, we'd better get on with our question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, I'll be getting inside your head with a question from Gerard Dunn. I've always been told that there are no pain receptors in your brain, so what I would like to know is why does it feel like the pain is inside my head when I have a headache? So how does a headache hurt? With the answer, here's Cambridge University's pain expert, Peter McNaughton. Why do headaches hurt when it's well known that brain tissue itself is not sensitive to pain? Well, the answer is uh, in the meninges, which are the rather tough bag which surrounds the brain. And during a headache, which is caused perhaps by a viral infection or perhaps by having too much to drink, the meninges become inflamed. And then the pounding of the blood through the blood vessels in the meninges causes the headache to hurt. So the short answer is that the reason a headache hurts uh, is because of the meninges, which are liberally innervated with pain-sensitive nerve fibres, rather than that brain hurts when the brain itself has no pain-sensitive nerve fibres at all. And on the forum, Two Dog Mum agrees, pointing out that while there are no pain receptors in your brain, there are ones in the dura, which is a layer of the meninges closest to the skull. If there's swelling in blood vessels of the dura, this could cause the pain. Joyce Robert agrees and comments via Facebook... 
when you look under the hood of a car because something's wrong with your car, there's a whole lot of stuff under there besides the engine. And when you open up your head and take a look, there's a whole lot of stuff under there besides your brain. In my case, my problem was with the trigeminal nerve, which is a nerve ganglion in the base of your brain. And that was being touched by a blood vessel that was pumping blood. And every time it pumped blood, it would cause pain. And pain is sort of like heat. It radiates. And so you feel like a headache all over one side of your head. So there are a lot of other things inside your head that can cause pain besides just the brain. So, with that painful matter cleared up, moving on to next week's quandary. Hello, this is Jacob Hansen calling from South Korea. We are often told that we can make great savings by turning off all electrical devices that we keep on standby, such as televisions, transformers, cell phone chargers, etc. etc. But it seems to me that the electricity consumed by such devices will eventually end up as heat. If my home is heated completely by electricity, do I get any real savings by turning off all my standby devices? Thank you for a great show. So is there any point in switching off your lights, TVs and phone chargers during the winter? Will the wasted energy of appliances on standby all be transformed to help heat your home? And if so, is it actually wasted energy? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, let me say thank you very much to our guests this week, John Byrne, George Ebers and Eleanor Hippenen. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Mira Senthalingam and to Ben Vausler, who helped to produce this week's show, Hannah Critchlow, who helped to co-present it. We're back next week answering more of your science questions, so if there's anything you want to know, send it in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Scientists.com.